Louisa, this is our second to last episode of Chewing the Fat with WBZ, so it's a little bittersweet. Is it? I like bittersweet, though, so I'm kind of looking forward to it. it. So second to last episode, it's kind of like the little like sorbet course or something they give you before, you know, your very end dessert. I mean, when you go to all those fancy restaurants, Monica, is your So it's going to be to tasty do. and even yeah. tastier knowing that we're going to restart again in mid-February as yes. Chewing. And you yes. can check that out at Chewing.xyz on the interweb. So just to clarify, our new food and health podcast is called chewing. Just chewing. Chewing. That's all. And you can find all the information you need at chewing.xyz. That's our website, chewing.xyz. And we'll tell you more about it later in the show. From WBEZ Chicago, this is Chewing the Fat. I'm Louisa Chu, a trained chef and culinary consultant. And I'm Monica Eng, WBZ reporter, home cook, and food writer. This week on Chewing the Fat, it's do or diet. We'll talk to my fat dad author, Don Lerman, and Dr. David Ludwig about his New York Times bestselling diet book, Always Hungry. Plus, I've made Monica what might be a diet dish, but will she eat it? You'll have to stay tuned to find out. All this and so much more on our diet episode of Chewing the Fat. Hey, Louisa. It's January. We're back. It's great to see you and to talk to everyone in podcast land again. Monica, it's great to see you, too, and be in studio. I've started um, my beer cleanse. I've actually got a travel cup of beer from Billy Goat Tavern. It's here. true. She's got beer here in the studio. I so, do. engineers, if you're hearing, she's breaking the rules. It's carefully placed aside. In any case. So, Louisa, you're on the beer diet, obviously, starting right. this January. Yeah. But a lot of people have adopted other diets this year. Some of the, the big fads this year were uh, the goop diet, the Always. 10-day green smoothie cleanse, Don't Dr. Kellyanne's bone broth diet for mm-hmm. rapid weight loss and wrinkle removal. They sound interesting, but these are the new diets. Let's take a step back in the way back machine to the classic fad diets. We actually have a list of some of the classic fad diets of years yore. And kind of looking down the list, I'm thinking, I haven't, it's like, wait a minute. I did the cabbage soup diet. How many days did you do it? Well, I didn't do it as a diet. I just made a big oh, pot not, of... Well, that's not a diet. It's just I ate cabbage soup once more. Well, maybe that's the key, actually, okay. then. Well, but I, I don't think I've tried any of these other hot fad diets. So just running down the list. I don't even know. Four-hour body, 5-2 diet, blood type diet. Okay, detox okay. diet is too I read general. the blood type diet, and I know a lot of people who think it makes sense. I think if you're O, they say that you need meat. Um, B's and A's probably don't crave it quite as much. I've definitely been on cabbage soup. Definitely did Scarsdale when my mom was on it. Back What's the Dukin diet? It's another type of low-carb diet, and Kate Middleton was famously on it before the big royal wedding. Princess Kate was on the Dukin diet? Yep. yep. Okay, I love... The French people like it, too. Kate and Wills, but I don't know anything about... Wait. I did Atkins. I did Pritikin, which is super low-fat. Um, and then my sister and I, we, we bought a whole bunch of Slim Fast from... 
Maxwell Street Market when we were in college and we just brought like a case with us back to Urbana. And what we used it as was, hey, look, we can drink a shake with our giant meal. We didn't kind of get the idea about meal replacement. So Maxwell Street is an open air weekly market in Chicago where typically people go to buy tube socks or eyeball tacos. Other things that kind of fell off the truck. A lot of times when you're buying food, it's strangely in mangled boxes (laughs) that look like they fell off the truck and you're kind of wondering, why do you have a whole bunch of expired Oreos? But speaking of fad diets, I recently talked to author Dawn Lerman. She's a nutritionist in New York City. But when she was growing up in Chicago, her father was the 450-pound Don Draper, mm. if you can imagine that. And I say that because he came up with Coke Is It, This Buds For You, and Lego My Ego. This oh, guy had come up with a lot of the catchiest ad phrases of his age, but he was a little chubby. Well, he's probably got a lot of those samples sitting around his office back in the day. Right. He used to say, I'm the best customer. I'm really trying this stuff. And so Don Norman has written this memoir of what it was like to grow up with a dad who was constantly on these diets. And I could relate because growing up, I had a parent who was on one fad diet after another. In fact, my mom, okay, I'm outing her, would say, I've got to go to the Cannes Film Festival in two weeks and drop 15 pounds. And so I had similar feelings like, what does this do to a kid? I also loved the book because her one saving grace in terms of real food was going to her grandma's house in West Rogers Park. It's a neighborhood in Chicago on the weekends where she had this wonderful homemade food. I had a similar experience. It was a Puerto Rican grandma. It wasn't a Jewish booby, but I really feel like we bonded. And so I started with the question of why did you even decide to write this book? Well, basically, I started the book as a recipe book. It was my daughter's first day of preschool, and I always fed my kids healthy. I made my own baby food. They drink green juices in their bottles. And my daughter, who was always very calm, the first day of her preschool, I picked her up, and she's lying on the ground, and she's crying, and she's running after the other kids and chasing the icing truck and throwing her clothes off. I'm like, what happened? What did you eat today? And then she proceeded to tell me on one day she had chocolate milk, Oreo cookies, you know, cheesy crackers with yellow food dye and a myriad of other things. And I just saw how her behavior completely changed. And then I spoke to the teacher and she's like, no, they were just snacks. I'm like, that's actually not a snack. A snack is actually like a mini meal of a protein, a fat and a carb. So then I started coming in and teaching in her school. I had already gone back to school for nutrition and doing these classes with kids and showing them how to make kale chip and guacamole. So I started writing a recipe book and making chicken soup. And then I realized in writing the recipe, everything went back to my grandmother. Like writing down the ingredients, my grandmother used to send me a recipe card every week with a $20 bill. And I felt like I needed to tell the stories behind the recipes as much as the as the, the recipes themselves, because it's not just about the ingredients. It's about, like, the memory, your attachment to food. Food isn't just about, like, the macronutrients. There's a whole history, usually, and people have, and that's why people have such an emotional attachment. And one story just kind of led to the other, and it kind of blew up. Yeah, because this book is, it, it's so many things, but this all comes together seamlessly. It's a tribute to your grandmother, Beauty. It's a story of your father's struggles with his weight, but it's also a story about a coming of age, if you will, of, of someone discovering food through all different ways in her life and, and growing up. And, and I think it's, it's so fascinating that you became a nutritionist because food really did affect you in so many ways. So let's start with 
your grandmother Beauty, whom okay. you you spent so much time with as a child. How did she well, affect your life? She saved my life. I mean, if it wasn't for my grandmother, I don't know what would have happened to me. My dad was in, you know, the ad business. Uh, my mom was a wannabe actress. My parents went out every night. My dad wrote for Playboy magazine, so there were like parties every night. They were out till four in the morning, so they didn't want to be burdened, you know, with the child. So every weekend they dropped me at my grandmother's house. And during the week we never had any food in our house. My mom didn't cook. My dad was always on a diet, so it was always like powdered this, frozen that, <laughs> um, and whatever he was having, I had to have. So basically, no food had like a smell, a taste, or anything nurturing, and I was always hungry. And then on the weekends, they dropped me off, and as soon as I walked into my grandmother's door, she'd be standing there with her hair all like fancy and her lace nightgown. She'd get all dressed up for me, and the smell, the wafting smell of chicken soup and sweet baked kugels and banana bread and dill, it just like were so aromatic. And just this feeling of like happiness overcame me as you know, as soon as I smelled it and walked into her kitchen and she embraced me and picked me up and put me on like the four you know, telephone books so I could sit on the table. Then we'd spend the whole weekend cooking together and shopping and going to see the butcher and the baker and everyone who she was friends with. And that was just such a wonderful time for me and it was that I looked forward to it. I used to have a little calendar and I'd be Five days before I went to Beauties, four days before I went to Beauties, three days before I went to Beauties, and I just couldn't wait between, you know, between visits. And then when I was nine years old, my dad got a very prestigious job at McCann Erickson as the international creative director, so we had to move from Chicago to Manhattan. And my grandma was basically scared that I was going to starve to death, so she's <laughs> like, look, we've been cooking together all these years, you're old enough. You know how to do it. So every week she'd send me a recipe card with a $20 bill, and she'd be like, if I'm cooking brisket for Papa, you could cook brisket for April, who is my little sister. Mm. If I'm cooking chicken soup, you could cook chicken soup. She's like, this way we'll always be connected and we'll be eating the same thing. Yeah, you know, it's it's interesting that you say that because I think a lot of people who grew up in the 70s and 80s may remember that time when, you know, convenience foods and processed foods were really just what the modern people yes. used. And, and you could really end up moving away from all those wonderful smells. That's what my smells. mother used to say. She'd be like, we eat this because we're modern. Yeah. And, and there wasn't that much of a flavor. It would only be the ethnic houses you passed where this gorgeous smell was wafting out. And you're like, oh, what have they been cooking all day? It smells... Right. You would just smell it. You'd be like, oh, my God, you would smell like the meat and the lamb and the curry. And you're like, oh, my God, this smells so good. And you just, it's, you know, it's a natural feeling to be attracted to that. It just gives you a sense of comfort. Like you, I grew up in a house where my mother was on the latest crash diet all the time. And you as a nutritionist and you as a person who watched your father go through that, what do you think that does to a, a child's conception of, of eating and their relationship with food? Well, my first memory is I was about three years old. My dad had me sitting like on the counter, and he was always cooking these diet concoctions. He was making a Weight Watchers cheesecake, and he looked at me. He's like, taste this. I'm like, oh, good, good. He's like, you know what would be really good? A world without calories. I'm like, oh, yeah, I agree. So the first day of kindergarten, we were going around introducing our names, and they, it was a religious school. So they said, what do you think would make the world a better place? And I'm like, a world without calories. And the teacher just kind of looked at me. 
how do you think it affected your relationship with food? Well, because I had my grandmother. My grandmother is like, you know, my dad was obese. He was 450 pounds. My grandmother was like, you know what the secret is? He's not going to listen to me because he's college educated and I'm not. Mm -hmm. But the secret is, is you got to cook your food and food has to have a smell and a flavor to satisfy you. She's like, he's overeating because he's not satisfied. If you learn to cook... And you cook like me. You could eat as much as you want, and you'll never be heavy. Do you remember also the cabbage soup diet? Yeah, I was on it. (laughs) When my dad was on the cabbage soup diet, that's all we ate. We were on the Israeli army diet. All I ate is apples during the week. When he was on the rice diet, all I got to eat was rice during the week. Whatever my dad was on, we had to be on. So the only time I kind of had a normal time was, like, at my grandmother's house. So having just finished the Mad Men series before I read your book, mm-hmm. I, it was so strange. It's like, this is real. These these client dinners really do happen. McCann Erickson is a real thing. How did you respond to watching that series? Oh, my God. As, uh, as my dad would say, that is so tame compared to real life. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it brought back a lot of memories because I used to run the, around the halls of McCann Erickson, and that's exactly what it looked like. Um, and they'd have that. They used to have these huge parties, and you know, for Christmas we'd get to come, and we'd run up and down the halls, and we'd have pigs in a blanket, and all kinds of you know fun foods. So there was an aspect to it that was really fun. And so you ended up having to fend for yourself a lot, and and cook for yourself. How do you think that affected your sense of independence? Or did you feel like you were kind of neglected? Yeah. And I mean, I love being independent. I had a subway pass and I was very adventurous and I got to go everywhere and meet different people. But I definitely had a hole in my heart, you know, and I, I definitely was always looking for something to fill it and cooking filled it. But more so than just the cooking was meeting the different people like I fell in love with like the health food store because everyone was nice and they really embraced me and they taught me about smoothies and green juice and grains and people were so happy to talk to me and they were so excited about all my questions and that was a place like I felt like you know, like Audrey Hepburn at breakfast at Tiffany's. Like I just walked into the health food store and I felt like I was home. So I have a message from a friend. She's one of our producers on our international affairs show. She went to Anchiamit. I think she was there maybe a few years after you. And I said, oh, I heard the food at Anshi was just delicious. She said, are you kidding? She said, Ashkenaz, kosher food has no flavor. She's now married to an Italian. I'd like you to give a defense, if you want, for that food. Oh, my God. I loved the food. I remember the lunches exactly. I remember what the juice tasted like. I remember what the macaroni and cheese tasted like. I remember getting like Tam Tam crackers and snacks. <laughs> I remember everything. I, to me, the food was delicious. And it was, I didn't get, that was the only food I got during the week was like lunch. And we sat at tables and we talked and it smelled like food and it was warm. It was, it was one of my favorite times. Well, that brings me to my next question. How much do you think nostalgia affects a reaction to food? Oh, I think it's so important. I mean, things sometimes taste good just because they have the memories attached. Like, I'm not so much sure that I actually love the taste of Kogel. I mean, I do. But it, remind, it brings me back into my grandmother's kitchen. And when I cook it with my daughter... She talks about my grandmother. She's like, remember what, you know, my grandmother passed away a couple of years ago. She's like, remember when we made it together? And remember when she was like doing that crazy dance in the kitchen? She's <laughs> like, it's about bringing back the person also through the food. 
you had mentioned that you were going to Studio 54 in your teens. I, I was. Tell me about that. Well, let me just uh, to preface this. Well, I was, but so was everybody else. There was a, <laughs> there was a lot. I, there, a good portion of their crowd was like, you know, between 13 and 16 years old. Mason Reese was there. Brooke Shields was there. I mean, the whole place was underage. But, <laughs> but it was an amazing, wonderful place. And getting in there the very first time was one of the biggest adrenaline rushes that I could ever describe. Um, I got to dance with Mick Jagger and Rod Stewart. I was 16 years old and I kind of feel like an orphan. My sister's away in the national tour of Annie. I'm home with my dad who is supposed to be taking care of me, who's out of town, and I'm alone. So what do I do? Every night I go, I get dressed up at 15 years old and I go to Studio 54 and there I'm a celebrity. I walk through thousands of people. I get in. I'm by myself. They let me in. I just kind of walk around. I know people. I meet people. There were speakers, so I dance on the speakers, and the speakers would shine on me, and people would take pictures of me. So it's kind of like you have your mini, like, celebrity moments, even though all you're really doing is being at underage and dancing on the speaker. <laughs> I remember when I was reading those passages, it just really blew my mind, and I was thinking, I need to call home to my 15-year-old son and say, what are you doing every night? But I think that it's was a, a certain, different time. I don't yeah. think people do it. I do that anymore. In a way, it was a very innocent time because me and my friends, we actually would go there to dance. So it was like this amazing like mecca of people like mashed together in this place with the pulsating music and sparkles coming from the floor. Um, Donna Summers would just of us pop up and just start singing. <laughs> So you have tried and watched in real time the results Everything. from so many different things and your nutritionist. So, of course, I have to ask you, what have you come down to as the way, let's say, most people should be eating? Well, basically, eating the way my grandmother did, you know, cook as much as you can, but real food, chicken, vegetables, soups, salads, fruit, vegetables, you know, food that you could pronounce, right? Fruit gets moldy. Vegetables get soggy. If it lasts for months on the shelf, imagine what it does to your body. That is such a good point. I, mean, I right? really... that, that was her slogan. I thought that was really good. I didn't realize how good it was until many years later. I'd be like, you know, I always said that, but it was so true. Yeah, I think so much of modern food has been grown and produced for shelf stability. And we have to ask ourselves, at what cost have we gotten the shelf stability? Right. I mean, when I work with clients, that's the first thing they, I say. If you get away, get away from the foods that last for months on the shelf, you'll see you're just going to drop five pounds like that without doing anything else. They, uh, yesterday, the, uh, the new um, guidelines from the Obama administration came out. Even that was actually pretty good. It said fruits, vegetables, you know, lean meats, not too much red meat, eggs are okay. You know, all the basic common sense things that are going back to the way we used to eat. Eat real food and cook. Take and time cook. to cook. Cook. And even if you can't do it every day, if you do it once a week and you stock up and make a soup, make a salad, make it roast chicken, things that you could just kind of pick at or make into different meals. Well, Dawn, for my last question, I want to ask, and a lot of people who've written books with recipes hate when I ask this, but do you have a recipe that's your favorite? My favorite is my grandmother's chicken soup. There's nothing like it. I make it when I'm happy. I make it when I'm sad. I make it when I'm sick. I make it when I'm cold. Again, it always transports me into that like happy place of being with my grandmother in her kitchen. Before I even taste it, you know, I just smell it. The way it, like, the kitchen steams up and the fresh dill. 
it just transforms me to a time that's really happy. And I love sharing that memory with other people and making the soup and sharing it. And it makes my grandmother stay with me. Well, for that recipe and more, check out Don Norman's fabulous book, My Fat Dad. And thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much. I had such a good time. This was a great conversation. And I need to find out more about your childhood in Chicago. Louisa, that was my talk with Don Lerman. I know you didn't grow up in a house where your parents were on fat diets no. all the time. So how did it strike you? Well, again, i lucky that I guess I didn't have a dad who was on fad diets or a mom who was on fad diets. And your but parents probably cooked, no? My mom. My mom definitely cooked and cooked still. Um, but my grandmother actually was way more health conscious. She actually was a trendsetter. She used to keep a daily food diary. Wow. Every night, my grandmother would sit down and write down everything that she ate that day. But, you know, it was just kind of part of her daily diary. I, I hope mean, you have that document. That would be a fantastic show. We could do a whole segment, don't we? We could do a whole show on I it. I know. Very sadly... This is a whole other family drama. Okay. Is that um, those documents apparently may or may not exist? But um, in any case, uh, you know, I'm I'm really lucky that my family was not so crazy about <laughs> diets or dieting. We just, you know, I and I guess maybe part of it is that um, both my mom and dad lived through literal, actual starvation times. So they didn't have to simulate it. No. And so once they got here, they were like, yeah, no, we're going to eat and we're going to eat well. And, you know, even though my grandmother was kind of maybe more health conscious, as I've said previously on Chewing the Fat, my dearly departed grandmother and grandfather were the ones who introduced me to the pleasures of White Castle. I mean, they definitely cooked as well. But, uh, I, you know, from all that, I feel really lucky. And then also that my grandmother did not dress up in a lacy nightgown. Yeah, that was a little interesting. <laughs> but, you know, maybe Bobby's like the, the nightgown and the nice hair. I don't know. Dawn, I'm sure your grandma looked fantastic. I just am glad my grandma didn't dress up in a lacy nightgown for me. <laughs> Louisa, once again, this is our second to last episode. Second to last episode. Of so, Chewing the Fat. Right. Because we've been we've been working on our new food and health podcast, Chewing. And remember, I put all the information at our new website, chewing.xyz, Monica, in case you forget. That's and- chewing.xyz, where you can subscribe with that subscribe button, and we would totally love that. So, Louisa, late last year, I told myself, I am not going to travel anymore. I'm done. I'm tired of traveling. But then I got an offer I couldn't refuse. It was to go to this conference in Boston, where for two days, the top nutrition experts from all over the world were going to be at an airport hotel trying to come up with a consensus on the right way to eat. There was low-fat King Dean Ornish. There was a paleo advocate. There was the head of the Harvard School of Public Health's nutrition department. There was the same guy from Yale. There was Colin Campbell of the China Diet. And there was also David Ludwig, who is an obesity researcher at Boston Children's Hospital. And David Ludwig actually wrote this Book. It's like the diet book on the good list, like the NPR list and the New York Times. The good list. list. Yeah, not the weird best-selling list that you see out there sometimes with like total quack books out there. This is actually a good list. And I was following along because 
I got to say, it was a little bit of a weird name for the conference. It was the Old Ways Conference. Well, Old Ways is an organization that promotes traditional diets, whether it's the traditional diet of Latin America or Africa or the Mediterranean. And they're very big supporters of the Mediterranean diet. And so at this Old Ways Conference, I talked to Dr. David Ludwig, who's the author of Always Hungry, Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. The first thing I asked him was what I always ask people who wrote a book. Why did you decide to write this book? You know, the conventional approach to weight loss is based on calorie balance. Simple. Just eat less, move more. It sounds so easy. There's just one problem. It very rarely works. A small fraction of the people who try to restrict calories can keep the weight off for more than a few months. And the problem is that we've known why. The body pushes back for biological reasons. When we cut back calories, we get hungry and perhaps equally importantly, our metabolism slows down. And so that creates a battle between mind and metabolism that we're doomed to lose. The book takes the opposite approach. It tries to turn dieting on its head by forgetting calories and focusing on foods that alter our biology and metabolism. And we think that the central issue is the fat cells. Fat cells stuck on calorie storage overdrive. They're sucking up too many calories, leaving too few for the rest of the body. And until that problem gets solved, it's a never-ending struggle. Okay, so how do we solve that problem? How do we get the fat cells to give up those calories? So why are we year after year gaining more and more weight. A study just came out suggesting that prevalence of obesity is continuing to go up, even though our genes haven't changed. We think that there are uh, some critical aspects of our diet and our lifestyle that are forcing fat cells into calorie storage overdrive. And that's specifically, uh, we call them twin troublemakers, high insulin levels and chronic inflammation. So they whip up fat cells. They cause them to suck in more than their fair share of calories, leaving too few for the rest of the body. So the key is to eat and live in a way that lowers insulin and calms chronic inflammation. The top of the list is all of the processed carbohydrates that have entered our diet during the low-fat craze. You know, we ask people at least for two weeks, that's phase one of the program, to completely give them up. But you're not gonna feel deprived because it's a very rich, luscious, high-fat diet. Actually, 50% of calories is fat for two weeks. Nuts and nut butters, full-fat dairy, uh, rich sauces and spreads, um, pro quality proteins as well, and natural carbohydrates. When that happens, fat cells, when you eat that way, fat cells open up and flood the body with calories. Energy goes up and cravings vanish. And I'll say in, in phase two, we begin to add back um, grains, unprocessed grains that are more slowly digesting, and uh, potatoes except white potato. And then in phase three, that's the individualized plant for life, you can begin to add more of some of the more processed carbohydrates back based on your body's own ability to handle it. Some people after uh, a few weeks or months of, uh, re of, of reestablishing a healthy metabolism can begin to tolerate some sweets and treats, and so why not if you're you know, at a party, have uh, a splurge a little bit. But for other people, especially those with metabolic problems like prediabetes, 
any of those highly processed carbohydrates are going to start triggering cravings and leading to a cycle of weight gain. And for them, the benefits of feeling good, feeling in control of their bodies and not always hungry are going to so vastly outweigh the, the fleeting pleasures of processed carbohydrates that it'll be easy to sustain. What I liked about the book was you didn't assume that everyone is going to react in exactly the same way. You mentioned that depending on how your body reacts with insulin, that may determine what you can reincorporate. You know, the problem with processed carbohydrates, so we're talking about white bread, white rice, potato products, added sugars, uh, cookies, crackers, all of those foods that entered our diet in very high amounts over the last 40 years, they cause much more insulin to be produced calorie for calorie than any other food. Now, if you're somebody who, for genetic reasons or maybe because of other um, biological stresses, you secrete a lot of insulin, you could see how that would lead to a vicious cycle of you know, more insulin, uh, which forces more calories into fat cells, leaving fewer for the rest of the body, leading to cycles of hunger, and cravings for more refined carbohydrates. So those people, the high insulin secretors, are going to be especially sensitive to the processed carbohydrates. How can you tell? Well, you could go, you could get an oral glucose tolerance test and check your insulin levels. We're certainly doing that in research, but uh, practically speaking, um, your body comp your body shape will tell you a lot of that. If you look a little bit more like an apple, if you're storing more fat around your midsection, you're likely to be a high insulin secretor. And according to research we've just published, you may be able to change your, your insulin secretion state. People who are high secretors can calm down their pancreas and start secreting less insulin after a few weeks on a reduced carbohydrate diet, which then lets you begin to add back some of the things you previously couldn't tolerate. So a lot of people are going to hear low carbohydrate, relatively high fat in the first phase, and they're going to say, okay, where does this fit in the South Beach Atkins Mediterranean diet world? The strategy of our plan is to put science on your side so that you can put in a minimum of effort for a maximum of results. So we find that the fastest way to jumpstart weight loss and to improve your metabolism is by substantially increasing the amount of fat in your diet, up to about 50% for two weeks. But this isn't an Atkins diet. We don't eliminate all carbohydrate. Um, you can still have a variety of unprocessed carbohydrates like fruits, non-starchy vegetables, and there's carbohydrate in nuts and dairy products and the like. So it's the opposite of a standard low-fat diet. Not as extreme as an Atkins diet, um, a little bit richer than a conventional Mediterranean diet. One of the things I also loved about the book were the little homilies from people who'd been on it. How did you choose these people and who has been through this already? So we pilot tested the program with uh, about uh, 230 people from around the country. And these were people who were predominantly in their 20s, 30s, 40s, or 50s who had at least a few extra pounds to lose. The pilot test lasted 16 weeks, and this was exactly the same program in the book. In other words, we told people to eat as much as they wanted until they felt satisfied and snack when hungry. Completely ignore calories. And what we found was that people lost a substantial amount of weight, but that 
surprisingly, even before the first pound was shed, uh, most of our participants reported a, you know, almost an instantaneous turning off of food cravings. And we have research that helps us understand why that is. When blood sugar and insulin levels aren't shooting up and down throughout the day, the parts of the brain not just involved in hunger, but cravings, reward, and the classic addictions like cocaine, heroin, and alcohol, those parts of the brain's brain calms down. And so that makes it much easier to stay on. In a traditional diet, you know, you might get some dramatic results from calorie restriction for a few days or weeks, but then the work really starts as your body fights back. This approach that we use is the opposite of that. Since you're not restricting calories and you can still have a variety of carbohydrates, proteins, and fats, um, it, it's not difficult. And the benefits, the ease of the program continues to increase you know, as your body expresses its pleasure um, with this new way of eating. Another thing you have in the book are some really terrific recipes. I've, I've started to use that white bean and cauliflower substitute in the, in the shepherd's pie. And so tell me about the importance of delicious. Well, delicious is the key. You know, and I'll have to say that I did the book in collaboration with my wife, who is a gourmet natural foods chef. And so all of the recipes and meal plans weren't afterthoughts slapped on to meet nutritional targets, that we really considered uh, the, joy, the enjoyment of eating a fundamental part of the process. You know, and some people think that the problem with obesity today is that we just simply have too many tasty foods. The food industry has designed foods to, with just the right amount of sugar, salt, and fat to make us crave them. But I think there's something fundamentally the matter with that argument. Countries with far tastier food traditions than America, you know, think France, Italy, maybe Japan, have far lower obesity rates than America. You know, in fact, tastiness is not something inherent to food. You know, we know that one food might be very tasty, like a cinnamon pastry might be very tasty when you're hungry, but how would that taste after too large of a Thanksgiving meal? So tastiness is really how the body responds to foods. And part of the process in our program is to retrain the body to appreciate much more nutritious and sustaining foods than uh, we're used to in our industrial food supply. One more thing that affects what we eat and how the science is used is policy. And you have a, a pretty detailed plan about what needs to happen in policy to change the larger system. Can you talk a bit about that? Well, I think one of the things that we can mostly agree on is that you know whether or not there's a, an optimal ratio of carbohydrate or fat or, or how people may differ in their responsiveness, that our diet has become dominated by highly processed commodity-based industrial foods, which are devoid of real nutrition. They are very attractive to the food industry because they're so high profit, but they're undermining public health. And we have to recognize there's a lot of profit in the status quo. The food industry, because it makes so much money, lobbies against policies and regulations that would change this. So it's really up to us as the public to vote both with the ballot and with the fork. Every time we 
choose what to eat, what to buy. We're making a highly political act. Um, and if we all start demanding higher quality foods and buying less of these frankenfoods with dozens of ingredients we can't pronounce, the food industry will take notice and they will begin to market healthier foods. Dr. David Ludwig, author of Always Hungry, Conquer Cravings, Retrain Your Fat Cells, and Lose Weight Permanently. Thanks so much for talking to me today. Thanks. It's a pleasure to talk to you, Monica. Monica, that all sounded really good. And like I said, I know that this was one of the good books on the good lists, but I have to counter with my own diet, so-called diet, that worked really well for me, where I lost a lot of weight and What's was that really diet, thick. Louisa? What do it, you call it? It was my Paris dessert diet. Oh, my <laughs> gosh. That sounds like tons of sugar. It, it was completely tons of sugar. But And like I said, we always preface these diets saying, hey, but hey, big disclaimers, big disclaimers is that your Mileage may vary. Your body is, guess what, really unique and really different. So while there's all these guidelines out there, what may work for other people may or may not work for you and may or may not work for you depending on the time of life, your activity level, but... Your genetics, all sorts of things. All and sorts I, of well, things. That's, that's one of the things I liked about this. He said, you know, in this final phase... Everybody's going to have a different reaction depending on what kind of a secretor you are. Right. The first, I think that's the first time I've ever used that word. Um, and, and then, you know, you can take this test or you can say, am I apple shaped? If you tend to, to hold your weight around the middle, you may be a high secretor. And I have to tell you, as I'm reading this book, I'm thinking, holy cow, my partner, Colin, is inadvertently on this diet. Basically, he gave up processed foods and he started walking more. Walking is a big part of this diet, but he just feels much better. And uh, he had a hard time saying no to beer all the time. And he is reincorporating a little beer back into his life. But generally, this whole thing of lots of vegetables, as much fat as you want generally, not trans fats, obviously. And Getting rid of the sugar and getting rid of the refined carbs is pretty much what he did. Yeah, and I would say that probably my updated version of the Paris dessert diet, which was basically, yeah, work 18 hours a day in a Paris restaurant. Yeah, if you can, yeah right. if you can get a job in a Paris <laughs> restaurant for 18 hours right. a day. Right, and a certain a genetic level and a certain age level, all those things. Maybe my update is uh, the dog walking diet paired with my beer cleanse. So I, I maybe I could sign up some people on my next next year's bestseller list. In the meantime, you can check out David Ludwig's Always Hungry at your local bookstore. You're listening to Chewing the Fat. And as you may know, one of our regular features is Will She Eat It? It's been a long time, Monica, but for this... Too long. Yeah. Do or diet edition of Will She Eat It? I made you what I made for this year's soup and bread season kickoff. And what's soup and bread? Soup and bread is a Chicago event during the winter created by Martha Bain, a food friend, food journalist friend of ours, at uh, the famous bar called Hideout, where people basically make soup Bread is donated by Public and Quality Meats. Really nice bread. Yeah. And people come pay what they can, and then all the proceeds go to different charitable organizations every week. And so, There's such let, a nice vibe there. I really yeah, like it. One yeah. of my favorite food events anywhere in the world ever. Not only 
is the soup and bread usually really good, but it's just so good feeling. And we've talked so much about this being diet in terms of weight loss and health, in terms of physical health. This is one of the best examples, I think, of really also encouraging what I think Don Lerman touched on a little bit, which is mental health, the really Mm -hmm. big importance of that. The way it makes you feel. Regular listeners of Chewing the Fat might remember that for last year's season kickoff, I made bude jjigae, which is a Korean army base stew. Total mashup of junk food. Yeah, well, it was leftovers from the army base time. So it was a spicy ramen base with spam and kimchi and all sorts of stuff in there. This and, year, And American cheese, right? You're right. I'm so glad. You must have so loved gross. that. It was, it was a salt Monica, processed food bomb. You must have loved it so much that you yeah. remembered that American cheese mm-hmm. that I forgot. But My mouth is the, watering I, just thinking it, about it, it. Me too. Me too. All this, right. So what do you have this week? This year, I made and brought in for you today what I'm calling my ginger juk joint. So juk being the sort of slang Cantonese name for what also is known as kanji. The cool people call it juk. In fact, Koreans have a word for it that sounds like juk. There you go. It is basically a, a rice soup or gruel. And... My recipes, air quotes, so-called recipe is about one cup of rice to about eight cups of water. And to this, I added a really good amount of ginger, like about eight ounces of ginger. And I love the aroma, especially the flavor of ginger. I hate eating ginger. So I like leaving the peel on and then just either cutting it thick slices, or in this case, I didn't even bother. So I peeled one knob of ginger for the rest of it. I did not bother at all and just threw it all in there and let it boil and bubble up. This is an incredibly simple base because for soup and bread kickoff 2016, I did savory and your favorite sweet garnishes. Uh Yeah. So I did a completely plain, well, I should say really free base of just you were rice. free basing yeah, for the I first did. soup and yeah, bread no nice rice no wonder water. people actually pretended to like it right people loved it rice water and ginger so that people would add their own sweet or savory garnishes i recently overheard my dad telling the story to somebody about during his again starvation times during the during war times in china that this is one of the things that they ate to stave off starvation so the the irony that within our, within certainly his lifetime, within our couple of generations, that we've gone from really trying to eat less to lose weight to this is was something that they ate so that they could actually not starve to death. So I'm gonna I'm gonna garnish this up for you. Do you have any favorite juk stories or recipes? Do I have a favorite juk story? Well, my favorite juk is preserved egg and preserved vegetable in it, and then maybe a little bit of uh, pork. Actually, I ate that with Calvin Trillin at a restaurant one time when I was interviewing him for one of his stories. That is a Uh, classic combo. But my favorite juk story is when we were kids and we came downstairs and my dad was making oatmeal, we all freaked out because dad was putting shiitake mushrooms 
and soy sauce and green onions in the oatmeal, and we all thought he'd gone crazy. What he was trying to do was recreate the joke breakfasts of his childhood. That's so funny. That, again, is your dad, like my grandmother, so way ahead of the trends because now, of course, the savory oatmeals or savory gruels is a big thing. So you might have heard some of that shaking that was actually dry roasted peanuts from Aldi. And now I'm going to add in there a little bit of sliced scallions. Nice. Another very classic topping for Jook. You know, these studios here at WBZ haven't gotten a good grubbing up with food, with illegal food in in quite some time now. There's nothing illegal about this food. Good thing we're recording after hours. Okay, so I'm going to add a dribble of soy sauce now from Aldi, from the Aldi. The only ingredient that I couldn't find at our favorite, the Aldi, of the sort of classic toppings was sesame oil. I had to go to Trader Joe's to get it. So now, Monica, I actually have a surprise ingredient for you. Surprise ingredient? (laughs) Surprise ingredient? For my ginger juke joint. Monica and I had a chance to do a talk last week, and I actually took leftover chicken one week ago, ago? One week ago today. Did you refrigerate it at some point? Of course I did because, Monica, that's me. This isn't yours. So, okay, <laughs> let me just paint this picture for you. Louisa and I are at this fancy luncheon with fancy ladies. Very nice, at a fancy, fancy luncheon club, ladies. And she asks for a doggy bag after right. the first course. At, no, at the very end of... The main course, because, of course, for a fancy luncheon, we had three courses. We had a starter, main course, and then a dessert. In Spanish, we call you sinvergüenza. That means shameless. No shame. There is no shame in asking for leftovers because guess what? I stuffed it down. I ate every bite. No, because I was not hungry because I certainly wanted to leave room for dessert, which was actually a lemon souffle with a raspberry coulis. And guess what? That made me very happy because then I would have overeaten had I eaten all of this. And I'm certainly not the only person or the first person because they had leftover containers, doggy bag containers, mm-hmm. and little shopping bags for it. So even... I didn't see anybody else taking leftovers. I didn't see any of the fancy ladies taking leftovers. There were for sure. There absolutely were for sure. So I just wanted to assure everyone out there that my mission continues for doggy bags and that at the very fanciest private club in Chicago, at very one of the very fanciest locations, they have doggy bags, and it wasn't just me. So I'm going to offer you the chicken if you would like. You don't have to. It's fine. One week old, questionably stored chicken is my favorite (laughs) thing. Bring it on, Chew. It was absolutely not questionably stored. And we're going to explore this further in future episodes in terms of, of course, food and health. If I wasn't going to eat this today, and I'm probably not going to finish, you're not going to finish eating all this today, I'm going to stick it in the freezer and it'll still be good. Let's push it for another week. I say two more weeks. I say a month. Absolutely. I'll dare you to eat it after another month. No problems whatsoever. This chicken will absolutely come back in future Will She Eat It. <laughs> in future years episodes, we're going to keep a morsel of this chicken. That's right. It'll be sort of like our starter. The legacy chicken, right? We're going to keep it as a starter for other chicken dishes. There you go. 
So this looks beautiful. Thanks. You know, the Japanese say you eat first with your eyes. Have you ever heard that? Yeah, the French say that too. A lot of people say that. Um, I love the peanuts. I love the soy sauce and the sesame oil and the scallions. But this leftover chicken looks kind of like uh, I'm not even sure what what's what the fuzziness. It's kind of uh, furry. No, Monica, oh, that's the skin? it's not. It's actually a stuffed roulade of chicken with a little yeah, bit of Yeah, why does it look shaggy right. and furry? No, it's perfectly stored. Mm. Oh, I yeah. love warm, furry, shaggy chicken. No, it's not at all. Why is it more like a paste? That was maybe the was stuffing part of it. Was it pre-chewed or something? No, that might have been the stuffing part okay. of it. Well, this is really lovely. And what it does go to show is that you can make something really delicious for very little money, one cup of rice, eight cups of water, whatever garnish you want. And then you have our family and our heritage's comfort food. Well, one part of our culture, because you were saying that actually not only your Chinese part of your family Right, the Puerto Ricans. Yeah. We make asopao. So if you want to make a soup and then you want to just put tons of rice in it. In fact, that's what I did. My brother made something called arroz con gandules for Thanksgiving. He didn't cook it quite right. Sorry, Stu, you didn't cook it quite right. The rice was like weirdly hard in the middle. So instead of throwing it away, I made my turkey soup. I put a ton of the rice in there, and it turned kind of gruely, but really this wonderful, delicious turkey rice soup. And I would say that gruel perhaps is not the best word, not my favorite word for a description of this. I like to cook it to the point where the rice is really silky. Potage. Not even – it's – Something beyond a potage, I mean, because it's something that is taking, again, a foodstuff that was a staple of starvation times, literally for my own father, to now something that might be considered more of a cleansing health diet food, actually. And I was thinking, boy, yeah, a juk diet for some people, even though it's the white rice that is really demonized right now. It's certainly... But don't forget Don Lerman's dad. He's the one when he went to a fat farm who lost half his body weight on a rice diet. That rice diet. I could totally do the rice diet because, again, one cup of rice to eight to 10 to 12 cups of water, you're just basically not talking about very much food at all. So the ginger juke with one week old leftover chicken, Monica, is eating it? I'm eating tons of it and sign me up for some more. Thanks, Monica. Chewing the Fat is a production of WBEZ Chicago. Our production team is led by Joe Dassault. This is our second to last episode. We just got one more Chewing the Fat coming up, but we're starting a new health and food podcast called Chewing. You can subscribe to us on iTunes by going there right now and looking for Chewing the Podcast. Or I like to say it's a new food and health podcast, Monica, called Chewing. And all of our contact information, every way that you can subscribe, is on our website at chewing.xyz. That's chewing.xyz. We'll be relaunching on February 12th, and make sure you get the freshest episodes by subscribing now. On our next and final episode of Chewing the Fat, we're going to be talking about last meals. Last meals, deaths, and farewells. It's a lot more fun than you think it is. Thanks for listening to Chewing the Fat. You can hear that last new episode next week. I'm Louisa Chu. And I'm Monica Eng. And until next week, keep it diety and healthy, right? No. Mm-mm.